Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to British business leader, billionaire and philanthropist John Cordwell. John rose to prominence after he founded and built the UK's biggest independent phone retailer, Phones For You, which he then sold in 2006. Today, he's focused on property investments and philanthropy, not least his children's charity, Cordwell Children. In this interview, John Cordwell talks about his childhood in the back streets of Stoke and issues a warning about the dangers of Russian nuclear aggression. And as the government encourages British people to take in Ukrainian refugees, Cordwell offers to house families fleeing Putin's invasion in his Staffordshire home, Broughton Hall. Great to meet you, John Caldwell. You famously started Phones for You in the late 80s when I remember mobile phones were the size of bricks and even shoeboxes, and you sold the business in 2006. Were you always going to be an entrepreneur? Always, yeah. I was always going to be an entrepreneur, and I was always going to be successful, but never had any uh, idea how. I didn't really have any clue about business whatsoever. No idea how to get started, no idea what to do, and no inspiration or advisors around me. So it, it, it was a tough road getting started. You started on the road to business success with your brother, Brian. You suffered two years of losses. Did you ever lose faith? Did you fall out? <laughs> I think my brother and I fell out a few times, but, uh, you know, the he is a wonderful guy and we've got a very close relationship and there were stresses put on us by the business without any shadow of a doubt, lots of them, but because of the closeness and our joint loyalty to each other, we were always able to get through those things without any major problems. What was it about you that made you an entrepreneur? Your Famously proud of your origins in Stoke. You say you're Stoke through and through. You're proud of Staffordshire. You still have a home in Staffordshire. Even more proud of the UK, I might add. What aspects of your childhood? It was quite gritty. It certainly wasn't privileged in any way. What aspects of that made you the entrepreneur that you became? Well, I think living with my grandmother in a terraced house in the middle of Stoke-on-Trent, first of all, did two things. One was, it was a fight for survival. That sounds a bit dramatic, but I think compared to kids today, it absolutely was a fight for survival. It didn't seem like that to me at the time. It was just life, just the way it was. You know, it was just what you did. But also my grandmother told me stories of the Cordwell family uh, and it was all full of entrepreneurs, successful people, mill owners, bakery owners, farmers in South Africa. Mm. Um, and, you know, and it inspired me, I think. I mean, I can't really say for sure, but I think it inspired me in a way that I felt I needed to continue that tradition and break away from the back streets of Stoke-on-Trent and become successful. You're famous for starting your mobile phone empire, then selling it. Just update viewers and listeners a little bit on the business activities you're doing now, aside from your philanthropy, which we'll come to. Yeah, well, it's mainly property. I'm very, very heavily in property at the moment, which of course is a bit of a worry now with the Russian situation. I mean, we're worried about the Russian and the Ukrainian situation, of course, on a much more macro scale, but just purely on an economic scale, I've got a lot of property, a lot of exposure to property, and, uh, 
quite concerned about that at the moment because I'm building the world's most prestigious apartment block. There will be masses of customers for it, but you know, it's not good news that we're in this situation with the Russians, although I absolutely fully support these sanctions and fully support everything that we're doing because we do have to stop this crisis that Putin is causing uh, and this devastation of the uh, Ukrainian uh, people and the Ukrainian infrastructure. We'll come on to that as well, John. You spoke about your childhood in, in Stoke in the 50s and, and 60s, the importance of house and home. Do you think we're building enough houses here in Britain? Do you think there's an affordability crisis? I certainly believe that I couldn't have bought a house uh, if I was 25 now the way I did in the mid-90s. Do you know, we, we go through periods in history where house prices to earnings uh, fluctuate dramatically. And if you try and get on the housing ladder at the wrong time, mm. when houses are very high, maybe wages are disproportionately low, uh, and there's that, that, that ratio becomes broken, mm. then yeah, it's very difficult to get on the property ladder. But it always was, you know, I had to borrow money from neighbours to get on my property ladder, and then I had to work 80 hours a week to try and pay them back and pay my mortgage. It's never been easy. You know, life, who says life should be easy for any of us? I never had it easy. I mean, my life has been a total battle. Still is to some extent, although we're sitting in this luxurious property. But it's not all about money, is it? It's about everything else that happens in your life, who you're trying to help, what family health problems you have. You know, there's a whole, a whole sort of uh, environment of issues and problems that you can have in life. So it's not just about money, but, you know, yeah, the property market's always been difficult on and off. It goes through easy phases when you can borrow easily, when interest rates are low, when house prices are not so high. But sure as anything, then when that will change, you know, and the people being able to get onto the property ladder start pushing the prices up. Let's talk a little bit about Russia-Ukraine. You've been uh, very supportive of Western sanctions, pretty unprecedented sanctions, sanctioning the Russian Central Bank oil embargoes almost, back to the 70s, which you and I uh, remember. There isn't a military war between Russia and the West, at least not a direct military war, but there's certainly now an, an economic war, isn't there? What are the implications of that? Well, I've got seven points of implications in terms of how it's going to pan out. But the most frightening implication, I don't know whether your viewers want to know the most frightening implication, but, you know, we have... They're a hardy bunch, GB News Well, I hope, I hope you are, guys, because this is a bit... I, it frightens me. When you've got a megalomaniac psychopath like Putin, and he's nothing less than that, he cares not a jot about human life. It's crystal clear. He doesn't care about the Russian people. He doesn't care about his soldiers, and he certainly doesn't care about the Ukrainians. When, when you've got somebody like that, when the back's against the wall, and his is already, you know, he will be losing support amongst his people. It might only be small. He will be losing support among his oligarchs, and he will be losing support possibly amongst his Kremlin cronies. He's certainly lost the support of the world, uh, predominantly, He's going to be a war criminal. What all that says is his back is going to be right against that wall like a caged tiger, a starving caged tiger. Makes him more dangerous. Makes him more dangerous, absolutely. Now, to that point, does he get to the point where he thinks suicide is his only way out? I think he does. I think he will get to that point, potentially. 
It's a 10% chance this is, by the way. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but he will get to the point where he's increasingly uh, perhaps depressed about the state that he's caused for himself. And if there's no interfaces between him and that nuclear button, is he the sort of guy that thinks, well, if I'm going down, the world is going down with me, bang. Now, that's what frightens me. I think there's a 10% chance of that. That frightens me. When you come on to the other implications, there's lots of implications, there are implications for the West. We absolutely need to stop importing oil and gas from Russia. Now, that will have minor consequences for Britain, although it will help to push prices up worldwide, but massive consequences for the EU, who unfortunately have allowed themselves to be utterly dependent. About, if you were, take... 60% of Germany, 40% yes, of Western absolutely. Europe as a whole, but if their you take, gas use is If you take gas Russia. and oil, it's maybe 45% yeah, as an aggregated exactly. dependence yeah. on Russia. We need to stop that because all we're doing is fueling Putin's war machine, fueling his ability to kill Ukrainians. And I can't live with that on my conscience. I'd rather lose most of my wealth. I'd rather us all go to a reduced standard of living than end up financing Putin to carry on and devastate the Ukraine and who knows what beyond that. Now, if we do stop oil and gas, we'll, we'll fix it somehow. We'll all wear ski suits, and I'm sort of joking, but not. We'll wear ski suits in our homes. We'll keep ourselves as warm as we can. Summer's coming along. We'll keep industry going. We'll keep the hospitals going. We'll keep the poor and the infirm looked after. And yeah, we'll suffer. But we'll gain oil and gas from other places, not enough to make anything like the deficit, but we'll do it. We'll economise and we'll cut down our requirements. And guess what? In 20 years' time, we could then be saying we've saved the world environmentally because of Putin, because we'll go far more down the renewable energy path. We'll have to do what we should have been doing 20 years ago and really go flat out on renewable energy and environmental factors to make this planet safer and make it sure that we can try and keep in existence. You make it sound that as if the UK should be put on a kind of war footing, you know, like the, the, the early 1940s. Do you really think there is the support across the general population to do that? Of course, there's enormous outpouring of concern and grief from British people What's happening in Ukraine, they can see it on their television screens. You know, many people in this country have family connections with Eastern Europe, uh, of course. But this is a democracy. There's no chance of the UK itself being invaded, like there was very much so in our darkest hour. Do you think the public can really be carried to sustain the implications for really high food prices? Russia's a huge wheat exporter, of course, for three, four, five pound a litre petrol and diesel. We're hurtling towards two pounds a litre now mm. as we speak. Is this meaningful enough for the UK population that the rest of the country can buy into your vision? Because a lot of much more vulnerable uh, families, they're going to suffer big time. They spend a lot of their money, a high share of their income on the things that Russia exports, the price of which is now spiralling. Mm. But we're all in this together. Now, I, I, don't, I, I don't accept your point that the UK might not be invaded. Maybe not militarily by troops on the ground, yeah. 
But you know, cyber attacks. Well, we're so back on. to all sorts of attacks of Putin. What's he going to do? That cage tiger. Mm. What's he going to do? I mean, the ultimate being what we've already talked about, the nuclear button. Mm. But what's he going to do other than that? The UK is definitely on his hit list because we have supported the Ukraine more than any other country in armaments and support in every way. And I'm very proud of Great Britain for doing that. But back to your question, will the average British, British person um, support the fact that they're going to be worse off, higher oil prices, less fuel? I don't know whether the average British person will, but I, those that might not want to support that, I urge them to look at those Ukrainians, look at those deposed families, look at what's happening to that country, which is effectively a Western democracy and being torn apart and think with a humanitarian heart, not with uh, whether I can carry on putting 20 gallons of fuel in my car. Now, I know people all think it's all right for him talking because he's rich, but I'll take the hit. If I never drive my car again for the time being, I won't drive it. I cycle anyway most of the time. It's how I smash my shoulder up. But, <laughs> but, you know, and I'll, the rest, you punctured your lung, didn't you? And punctured, yeah, I, did, I did a lot, yeah. But, you know, I'll take the hit with everybody else and I'll turn all my heating off and I'll wear warm clothing. But, but the young plumber building a business as you were trying to escape the back streets of Stoke, back streets that are close to your heart, clearly, he's got to fill his van with diesel to provide food for his two young kids. Yeah, but the economy is not going to collapse as a result of these price rises. It's going to be tougher. It's going to, it's going to cause a drop in GDP growth. Nobody knows how much that will be, but it will be painful for some people, especially. Not for everybody, but for some people it will be painful. Um, but we've got to work flat out to replace those losses by renewable energy, by importing from friendly countries who can manage a bit of spare surplus. And we've all got to take it on the chin together. And I don't think the pain would be that extreme. It, it, it won't be easy, but it wouldn't be that extreme, not compared anywhere near to what's happening in the Ukraine. And I think the other thing people think need to think about that we are financing Russia's war machine to damage those Ukrainian people. And who next? You know, who is it next? Does he move into Latvia, Lithuania, any of the other Baltics? Does he attack Poland? What does happen? I mean, I'm not worried about that in the short term because mm. we're very, I think he's got his hands more than full with the Ukrainians. I think he's had a hell of a shot by the Western sanctions and a hell of a shot by the Ukrainian will and their skill and ability to defend themselves. So he won't be in any hurry to make any further invasions for some time yet, is my forecast. But I wouldn't like to bet on it, you know. We're, we're, we're dealing with the hands of a megalomaniac psychopath, so anything's possible. Let's move on from a crisis that we're in the midst of now to a crisis that we're hopefully through, fingers and toes crossed. How do you think future historians will judge the way the British government handled the COVID pandemic? I think on balance, apart from one or two mistakes that were made, probably fairly neutrally. That, that's how I would see, you know, we made a ridiculous, a ridiculous mistake sending people with COVID back into nursing homes. Mm. I mean, we made some atrocious mistakes, but overall, I think we've done reasonably well. If you compare to some other countries like Australia, locking all their citizens out, I think New Zealand did the same. I mean, I think that's dreadful. 
really dreadful. And I think there's been COVID mania, and I think it's been almost paranoically exaggerated. Now, that's not to take away for one moment those people that, you know, the danger of COVID, all those people that have tragically lost family and friends, you know, it's devastating. But the cost of the way we've managed it is also devastating because we've damaged livelihoods massively, we've damaged mental health, mm -hmm. and we've caused people who should have been getting treatment for cancer or other illnesses to be kept away from hospital, and they are now dying. So we might have saved the odd 80-year-old person, but we've sacrificed a 35-year-old mother of two. And that's the reality of it. We have done that. What was the answer? I don't know. But that's why I say I'm fairly neutral on it, because we can't sacrifice anybody. We have to do, from a humanitarian perspective, what's best for everybody. And I think the government have got it broadly right. But there's lots of times when I've condemned what they were doing, and lots of times when I've applauded what they were doing. You know, there was no right answer, was there? You, you've met Boris Johnson many times in the past. I think you'd agree with me, his initial instinct was a more kind of segregated lockdown, not full lockdown right across the economy. What do you think changed his mind back in the spring of 2020 that he turned on a sixpence and went for full lockdown? Yeah, I think there was a couple of things. I think, you know, the, the COVID was very deadly in those days and it was exploding through the population and the hospitals were full. And really the one criteria that you'd got to have was that you could not afford an overflow of intensive care because otherwise you've got a very inhumane situation. It's not just dying people, it's people who are dying who are not being looked after, who are lying in hospital corridors and they need an intensive care bed. But in the end, John, with all respect, we were nowhere near that. The Nightingale hospitals were set up. We, we barely used Absolutely. any of them. Absolutely. Was he over-reliant on just a few scientists who were maybe a bit gloomy? Shouldn't he have taken into account the ideas, the concerns of people in business, economists, well, sociologists, educationalists. Yeah, I'd go back a bit beyond that mm. and say, why didn't my, my solution to this was first of all, protect all the old and vulnerable because the early statistics showed mm. us that if it's me or you, we're so unlikely to die of COVID. Unbelievably unlikely. I think it was 0.1% chance of dying of it. If, one in a thousand. But if you're old and infirm, you were a lot higher chance. So my solution to that was protect all the old and the infirm. And then people say, well, how would you do that? Well, I've got lots of methodologies, but for example, I would have uh, set up the care workers in care, in care homes, nursing homes. I would have set them up on caravan parks. Yeah, move in segregated, long yeah. yeah, Segregated Give from the community. Give more money. Yeah. And I would have double paid them yeah, yeah. or whatever it was. I agree. They would come out of that two years later thinking, oh my gosh, I've sacrificed two years of my life, but actually I've got a lot of money yeah. and I've done a lot of good because I've kept those old people alive. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us could have been left to fight it out. Now, if then the death rate became untenably high, mm. then you'd adjust it again. And you'd certainly adjust it uh, by area, geographically, to try and contain it. I think there's a lot of ways we could have done it differently. And I said that at the time, so it's not with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. My earliest thing was segregate the old and the infirm, identify who's vulnerable, and look after them. Do what we need. Spend billions setting up these care camps where we're going to look after these people and isolate them from society to stop them getting, uh, you know, from stop the, the virus uh, breaking down their boundaries. 
So that, that was my early thought. Now, whether it was right or not, I don't really know, but it seemed a lot more sensible than what we've had of two years of absolute grief, where we've destroyed people's livelihoods, destroyed And 300 billion quid's worth of debt. And well, a bit more than that, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's being, and not, being optimistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not even invested properly yeah. in what I promoted all along, which was called well, pandemic recovery. You know, we haven't invested that money We've thrown it into people's mm. pockets, in some cases willy-nilly, given them too much, mm. and in other cases we haven't given them enough. So you've got three to four million excluded who haven't been looked after. Now, some of those perhaps shouldn't have been. I don't know, but I know for sure some of them should have been. Let's finish, John, if we may, with your philanthropic work. It's a really important part of your life. I wanted to start with something you recently tweeted You've got a house in Staffordshire, Broughton Hall, close to where you grew up. You've said that you're willing to take a Ukrainian family into one of the buildings you own there to house them for as long as they need so they can set themselves up here in the UK. How hopeful are you that that will actually happen? Oh, I think it must happen. I've said I'm going to do it. I don't know how to do it yet. I haven't had a chance to look at the the operational difficulties of that. I mean, I think I'll have to have somebody English speaking because if I'm going to help them and inspire them, I need to be able to speak to them properly. But so I think they'll have to be English speaking. And But I, I don't want to just have somebody that's reasonably okay. I want to have somebody who desperately needs my help uh, and try and help them and look after them and provide them with a future. And that future should be a self-contained future where I can help them get a job, help them be useful and productive. And if the Ukraine situation continues for many, many years, as is quite likely, and they're not able to go back home, that they've got a useful life in Britain. So I have to make that happen. I've said I'm going to do it. But also in my, in my call was a call to action for all wealthy people that could afford to do the same. And if all wealthy people respond, and some of them are, there could be a thousand families taken in and a thousand lives transformed. But you know what's also very, very heartening that came out of this? Because some of the responses I got were from families that said, I've got no money, I've got no spare money, and I've, but I do have a spare bedroom and I'm willing to take a family into my home. That is amazing. Utterly amazing. And that makes you proud to be British, right? Proud as hell. Perhaps not as proud as the Poles will be feeling at the moment, because if I was Polish... I'd be incredibly proud as well, but I am proud to be British. We're a great country and we need to put every last bit of our effort into saving the Ukraine. You are from a school of hard knocks, if you don't mind me saying so. You strike me as the kind of man who is more interested in giving people a hand up rather than a hand out, if you like, helping people to help themselves. Above all, in all the philanthropy that you do, what kind of people are you trying to help? What are you looking for in terms of the response from people who benefit from your charitable work? You know, that's a really easy answer because it's Cordwell Children. And Cordwell Children I set up um, 22 years ago to help all children with all medical conditions, no matter what. And the only criteria was that they couldn't afford to get them help themselves. So we help every single child in the UK that we can, that can't get the help anywhere else. And these children are in desperate, desperate medical need. And the families are beside themselves because when you've got an ill child like that, you're not able to work. Sometimes both parents can't work. You know, they both have to be at home looking after the child. And their financial situation is devastating. And they've got a child that really needs ridiculous sums of money spending to give that child 
any meaningful life at all. And that is the thing that fires me up more than anything. It's where I put most of my passionate uh, help into Cordwell Children. Uh, it's why it carries my name, because I was so proud of what we were doing. Um, but it's really any humanitarian cause that really captures my heart, like the Ukraine now. You know, and, and I want to do more help for the Ukraine, but I don't know quite how to make sure that my money, whatever I'm prepared to do, hits the spot. So I came up with this idea of taking a family, and because that way I can see that that family will have a good life and will have a future. And I'll be very, very proud of my activity there. But more importantly, if I can inspire thousands of people around the UK to do the same, because there'll be thousands of wealthy people could do exactly the same as me. But as I've already said, you know, there were poorer people who are just willing to give up a room to somebody to live in their house. It's amazing. My final question is this, and it goes back to your roots. You were born a Brummie, but of course you grew up in Stoke and that's the part of the country that's really close to your heart. What do you want Stoke to be in 20 or 30 years' time? It's such a citadel of British entrepreneurial genius over many years. Wow, what an advert for Stoke. It's on its uppers now. Yeah. Football team hasn't even got Rory Delap doing the long throw-ins anymore. What could Stoke be? Well, that's, that's a difficult question. And, you know, I am... Look, I'm, I'm British first. I'm European second. I'm world third and I'm Stoke fourth. And that's the order of priority. I'm a humanitarian that wants the world to be a lot better place. Mm. I love Britain and I want Britain to lead that charge to making the world a better place. We are doing that in the Ukraine because we are the number one supporter of the Ukraine. Not many people know this, but we've done a huge amount from supplying world-class missiles right the way through from training their army and guerrilla warfare many years ago. So we've done a huge amount and I'm pretty sure that uh, London is probably on Putin's number one hit list if anything went wrong. So it's not a good place to be. But I'm proud that we've done that. I'm proud that we supported the Ukraine and I'm proud of the British people. We're a wonderful country with wonderful values. And it's shown up when you look at my Instagram post where people are saying, come and live in my house. John Caldwell, thanks for appearing on GB News. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.